You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk, the literature corner. How can I speak, Werner? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> are you serious? How are you, my darling? Thank you. When last did we well, see thanks. each other? It's been a while. Have yeah. we seen each other this year? I'm pretty certain we have. have, have we? We? No, I we haven't. Know. We had our Tasha's due last year. Yes, yeah. and we had festive reads. Yeah. Have you been well? I have been well, thank you. Busy. I was doing the festive lineup and then all these books that keep coming out. Fantastic. Yeah. We love Karabo, both because she's a brilliant arts journalist and broadcaster. And it allows me to chill a little bit because, frankly, she can take over the show and I don't have to multitask that hard. Well, uh, before we start, I've got <laughs> good news for you. I do have a slot here on 702. It is from midnight to 3 a.m. on Sunday morning. It's late night talk, but hey. Yes. We are a community. Absolutely, we are. Happen. What are we going to do today? Those are very colorful covers that you have there. Yes, and they both happen to be yellow. Uh, the first one that I'm going to discuss is Black Moses by Alan Mabanku. And uh, he's a novelist who's been celebrated as an observer of the African dispossessed. He was born in the DRC, educated in Paris, and he's currently a professor of French and Francophone studies at UCLA. And he's coming to South Africa. Sounds very cool. And I like yes. that title. Black do Moses. Do tell, do tell. What is it about? I'm all ears. Well, just to give you a brief background, because I'm a huge fan of his work, the mm. first one I read was African Psycho about 10 years ago. And it's an up ending of Brett Easton Ellis's 99, uh, 1991 thriller. Mm. And it's about a would be serial killer in an unnamed African country. And he trolls for victims in a bleak neighborhood uh, that is. That is, you know, it's full of drunks. It is characterized by its alcohol <laughs> consumption. And it's called He Who Drinks Water is an Idiot. That's the name of the place. <laughs> wow. But he did this. He can't decide whether to use a gun or a knife. So he ends up not killing anyone. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds delicious. I've never heard of this novelist before. Oh, he is amazing. You can get is African it? Psycho. Now, Black Moses is his latest book. It is widely available. You can get it all at all the bookstores. Is it his second book or is he more prolific than that? It's his third book. Third one. Okay. Yeah. His second one is called Broken Glass. Mm. And it's about a teacher who's all washed up. And he indulges in his fondness for wine while chronicling the comings and goings of other ma- marginal figures in his bar. His local bar is called Credit Gone West. <laughs> so, you know, he explores, you know, the dark side and he's comical about the way that society is set up. He looks at challenges between, you know, socialism and the more sort of capitalist views of society. But he also criticizes the apparatchiks and he inserts characters who have uh, experienced misfortune. And in Black Moses, it's a story about an orphan. Mm. And uh, this is in a, it's set in a Congolese orphanage. And Moses falls under the tutelage of a Roman Catholic priest. And uh, he's exuberant. He has an exuberant spirit. This is the priest. And it enlivens the prison-like attitude. He shows up once a week. He instructs the orphans in catechism and teaches them songs and dances. And uh, he, he picked up the zesty outline that he uses in his native Zaire. He says things, uh, he writes things like uh, requiring the suppleness of a cat, the speed of a squirrel being chased by a boa, and above all, a remarkable wriggling of the hips. 
So, um, Papa Mupelo anoints Black Moses Tokumisa Nzambe Pomose Yamoyindo Abotami Namanga Namboka Yabokako. It's Lingala for thanks be to God, the Black Moses is born on the earth of our ancestors. Fascinating. Yes. Now, uh, what happens is that uh, there is kind of a... There's a way in which it recalls and harks back to the biblical Moses, but not quite. And um, he does he does try to live up to his name uh, throughout the novel. As I mentioned, he harkens back to the life story of his biblical namesake. And he provides him, uh, this is the biblical Moses, with a shining example of taking a principled stance against power. And that's when the insertion of power and how this now teenage black Moses starts mm. to think about, you know, how he relates to power. And, you okay. know, developmentally, as we grow, it's in our teenage years where we start to formulate ideas mm. about the world what is right, what is wrong, where we start to think philosophically about various ideologies. Now, um, he escapes from the orphanage. He wanders along with a gang of fellow orphans, and then he wanders by himself on the streets of the city of Pont-en-Noir, which is a city that also starts to crop up in Alama Banku's other work. So it becomes the setting for the different stories, almost in a way in which Charles Dickens uses the London of the times, mm. the sort of uh, early industrial London, to explore those themes of you know social justice balanced sure. against the challenges of industrialization. Mm. Whereas with uh, with Black Moses, it looks at the issues of you know post coloniality, the challenges that the DR Congo is facing after that long term that was served by um, Mabutu Sese Seko. Mm. And um, he also doesn't really gain an understanding of socialism from the government propaganda that he learns at school or the presidential speeches that he is forced to uh, memorize. Uh, but there's, there's interesting things that happen. You know, uh, he looks at, they, they explore the rights of prostitutes, for example. Uh, they look at um, this mortician. There's a mortician in there who's called Fiat 500, who's got this strange and morbid relationship with the dead. So it is a kind of story that sort of, t- it's, it's full of vignettes that are hilarious. Mm. <laughs> Alam Mabanku is a really funny writer. His stuff is dark and also, um, it's, it's absurd, but also existentialist. So he's okay. often compared to your Dostoevsky or Albert Camus. And I love that, that sort of comparison with Albert Camus type of comparison with Albert Camus type of work. Okay. Uh, you think of the stranger, for example, mm. and how the stranger kind of dithers as well, not sure about how to make up his mind about life and mm. the world. And some, either he, he sort of, he triumphs in the end or he kind of remains stuck and it's left to you to sort of wonder about him, maybe feel a sense of irritation about him as well. Lovely. Black Moses. What is the last book you read? And was it as riveting as this one that Karabo is telling us about? You can do a 30-second review of your last book. I won't give you as much space as Karabo gets on the show, unless you can speak as beautifully about books as she can. 011-883-0702 in Johannesburg and in Cape Town on 021-446-0567. I'll tell you the last book I read as well on the other side of this break. We'll talk about what we're both currently reading as well to spread the love of literature and all things books. And we might speak to Albi Sachs if he doesn't make it. We'll speak to him to use pretentious legalese because he's a lawyer. Otherwise, we'll speak about his book in absentia. Seven two and Cape Talk.
The Literature Corner. And we're hanging out with Karaba Holeng. We're talking about books we've read recently. You can tell us what you've read as well, the open line. Uh, the line is open, rather, and we can hear just a yay or nay. It doesn't have to be a detailed review. Just tell us whether you liked a book or not. And if it struck you in a particularly compelling way, we'll give you a full minute or two, and you can tell us what it is that you loved about it. Now, the last book I read is um, Michael Kay. It already. <laughs> oh my word! And it's <laughs> yeah, it's it's so beautiful. And I mean, I'm a Jane Kutsia fan. I yeah, Jane Kutsia is one of my two or three favorite South African novelists. And Life and Times of Michael K is my all-time favorite Jane Kutsia novel. Mm. And there's something about the character in the Kutsia novel that is incredibly elusive. And you don't get a proper handle on the character, but not in a way that is jarring. It is just Kutsia being Kutsia, but it kind of works. But the difference with Ndikeng is that he is lyrical without being ethereal. You know what I mean? Yes. So it's like very precise in his depiction of time and place and his exploration of themes like illness and death and love and all of those kinds of things. And so there are interesting similarities with Kutsia in the sense that both of them are incredibly artistic writers. Yes. But I think there's one respect in which Ntikeng is very different. He has a precision. And Zakesam Dar said it, that there's a kind of lyricism about this book, whereas the book that it is a engagement with, you know, the, the character in the Kutsia's character is a far more woolly, slippery character, difficult to get a handle on. And that was intentional. But Ntikeng has got the skill set to, to give him a kind of humanity and a, and a kind of interesting roundedness that he doesn't quite get in life and times with Michael K. And I must say, um, for a contemporary novelist to try and engage a giant in literature, you know, global literature, was obviously quite a task, but I think you succeeded. You will love it. What's Michael's case, Michael K's story exactly? Well, I mean, so Life and Times of Michael K, it, it's very weird because like a lot of the work of Goodseer, you have the setting in terms of like a wartime, there's stuff going on in the Western Cape. And then you've got this character whose mom is basically busy dying and he ends up with some sort of wheelbarrow-like structure, basically trying to take her back to where she says she comes from uh, outside of Cape Town. And they just keep on walking, basically, which is where it starts getting very weird and woolly. They stop off in Stellenbosch, they get into a hospital, eventually the mom dies and he continues news and then he tries to escape from the police it's not quite clear what his race is but he clearly is part of the oppressed groups and um and so there isn't much narrative because all the work that he's done is in this weird kind of like allegory of this character that keeps on trying to escape from one place to the next and hoping to take your mom back to where she claims that she was raised and she was born and you don't quite make it, right? And sort of like the heart of Life and Times of Michael K. And what you have in Michael K. by Ndikeng Mushlele is this beautiful attempt to almost do a kind of literary criticism of that character, but not in the academic sense, but by actually writing a work of fiction in which uh, Michael Kay makes another cameo appearance. There are other characters there as well. There's a really wacky philosopher professor that engages a second character, and they basically talk about the second character's relationship with Michael Kay. So it allows Ntikeng to comment on Kutsia's work, but in a way that is incredibly beautiful because it's not literal. You know what I mean? So it is very much uh, intertextual conversation with the original. And I think, 
I won't say it's his best book yet because I've loved every single one of his novels and everyone always thinks the latest book is the coming of age novel. I don't think it's that. All his work have been incredibly beautiful and you can see the similarities with what came before uh, in terms of his meditation on everything from jazz to illness to, you know, human relationships to people dealing with the slow degradation of their physical body. I have gone so far, even, and uh, my other author friends have taken it quite nicely. I think Ndi Kang is now my favorite South African novelist, contemporary novelist. That doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. And like you said, the way that he meditates on various themes, you know, it, it strikes me as very philosophical. So I'm not surprised Deeply, that no. there's a philosophy professor who's actually, yes, you yes. know, part of of that uh, particular novel story. But now you've read a book that um, that I must read. And um, I think we've got LB6 there as well. You take over. LB's with us in the Cape Talk studio. I'll shut up now. Well, uh, it's Oliver Tambo's dream. And just to start off with, LB Sachs, uh, he was a former justice in the Constitutional Court. So he is a lawyer. He once worked in Mozambique as a professor of law. and But his writing... He has this way of just telling a story simply, but he's also very lyrical. Mm. He also uses amazing analogies. And I just keep falling Including in love his with judgments. His judgments were, they still are, uh, because they live on, very artistic. Ah, that's wonderful. And I am so, so stoked and to I have him absorb. on the line. Yes. Hello, Albie. <laughs> yes, keep going, keep going. I, I've got an infinite capacity to, to absorb flattery. Thank you for joining us in the studio there in Cape Talk. It really is a, a wonderful, wonderful treat to have you on the show. I haven't read, read your book. I will read it pronto, um, but I will allow um, my colleague Karabo to take over a little bit. Well, uh, Albi, the, the book is actually compri- uh, comprises four lectures that you delivered at different universities, and that's how you break it up. Now, I want to just touch on each one briefly, uh, because you raise interesting questions. You counter uh, various erroneous views and opinions that have arisen uh, regarding uh, the, the thoughts and the position uh, in history that's that's being created uh, by some of by our leaders so or tambo particularly mandela there is uh, this big uh, there's this growing idea that he was a sellout you know people not understanding uh, where he was coming from as well as deliberating on the land question but you begin with three burning questions when you ask what was the one good thing that apartheid created uh, if you did a paternity test on the constitution, whose DNA would you come up with? And what was the object of the freedom struggle? To get a share for ourselves of the spoils of war or to enable all the people to share in the fruits of liberation? I want to know what was the one good thing that apartheid created <laughs> in your view? You know, this is on the air, so there's no audience you can see. But when I ask that question, the shock in the fa- on the faces of everybody and I'll leave it for a minute, like I'm leaving you for a minute, and I say the only one good thing apartheid did was to create anti-apartheid. <laughs> and it was because of that I joined the Defiance Campaign as volunteer number 8,942 or something in Cape Town sitting on a benchmark, non-whites only. And volunteer number one was a certain Nelson Mandela. We would never have met. We wouldn't have known each other. I would have grown up in my kind of cosmopolitan uh, international, internationalist, socialist-oriented world in Cape Town, city urban, and he would have grown up probably making money 
uh, as a lawyer in Johannesburg. But through apartheid, through joining in the struggle, we became connected. And that changed my consciousness, my passion, my commitment. And, and in Akaraba, what was important was I was giving these lectures at universities. And the audience had a mixture of, oh, God, often lefty, progressive uh, academics and young fallists. A terrific group of people to, to be speaking to. And in, in a sense, these four lectures were dialogues with the Fallist movement. A Fallist movement because they were the most active uh, last year, the centenary of Oliver Tambor's birth, and thinking about his life and what we went through. So in that sense, I'm not going in for fiction. I'm describing journeys, uh, if you say lyrically, because my life has been lyrical. I felt it in that way. But these were real things that happened, and I want to share it and communicate it with it and, and, and to give people, not to say you're wrong, you misunderstand us, how can you say it, but to give them something of, of the joy and the tragedy and the drama and the excitement and the puzzlement of the lives that we led. Uh, and, of course, for me, meeting Oliver Tambor was, was enormously uh, probably had a greater impact on me than any other human being, and he couldn't have been more different from me. Very deeply Christian, I'm secular, rural area, um, uh, very much growing up in the heart of African culture and tradition. I very much cosmopolitan, parents coming as children, fleeing persecution in Lithuania, uh, and yet the impact he had on me, as you'll see in the book, and maybe your questions will refer me uh, to, to some of them, uh, was enormous precisely because we were so different and yet in the same country in the same struggle. The one lecture that I'm, I mean, I'm obviously keen to read the entire book. I might even steal this copy. Um, but the one lecture in particular that's very now and very important, uh, Judge Sachs, is obviously this question around radical land reform. Can you give us a little bit of a taste? They must read the whole book, so don't give it all away. But uh, <laughs> give us a sense of the direction in which that lecture went, whether or not this constitution that is much maligned by some young fallers as being anti-black, anti-poor, way too neoliberal, is it indeed an obstacle to radical land reform? You know, it's, it's a strange thing. The, the, the challenge to Mandela, in a sense, is so unfair to him. Many people only know him as the guy who they see was too nice, too nice to the whites, too soft and so on. And that was the late Mandela who played a tremendous role in easing South Africa from that racist, authoritarian, cruel state into a modern contemporary democracy. It was fantastic what he did, but he was a revolutionary. He took up arms. He fought in prison. He grabbed one warder one day who was beating up a prisoner. And we know him as, as this powerful person with, with a terrific intellect and so on. He played a very small role and so on. He played a very small role in the texting of the Constitution. And there was a whole generation of us, and we were revolutionaries. We were freedom fighters. We were passionate. We wanted the land to come back. My boy, Africa. That, that was what I came into <laughs> politics with, and, and that, that has remained with me to, to this day. The question was how to strategize. And when we started the negotiations at, at, at Kempton Park, we were in a tough position. We had huge support on our side, but the guns, the military, the state apparatus, the economy, the control of the media to a large extent, all in the hands of white supremacists. Mm. So our strategy was the first thing we need is to get to a constitutional assembly. We call it a constituent assembly. 
change the game completely from people sitting around a table with morality, justice, freedom on one side, but guns and power on the other side. Change the rules of the game completely. Now it will be a democratically elected parliament with the voices of all our people present that will be defining the rules in relation to property. So if you look at the interim constitution, uh, 1993, it's got quite strong protection of property rights with qualifications built in, nothing about land. If you look at the text of the final constitution, 1966, it wasn't created by us uh, at Kempton Park. It was created by Parliament, overwhelmingly mm. black people there. Most of them had been in prison, in exile, in the resistance, all longing for freedom and change. And thinking about what kind of phraseology will best convey what we want. So section 25 then, much maligned, instead of being a break on transformation, actually calls for transformation, imposes a duty on the state to make land accessible, opens the doors very, very widely. And then the only clause that imposes any kind of, of break at all would be the compensation. Uh, the Constitution expressly allows for land reform being expropriated as a public interest matter. Mm. In, in other countries, you can expropriate land the state for a hospital or a school or an airport, but not for social purposes. In South Africa, you can do it for Absolutely. land reform. It's there. Let's take a bit of a break there, Judge Sachs. We're going to keep you just for five more minutes, if we may, because um, this is just a wonderful conversation. But in the meantime, it's half past Medical Talk. The Literature Corner. Yeah, slightly extended, because why not? We're having great fun talking about books. Uh, we're doing book reviews with Karaba Khuleng. And right now, we're just wrapping a conversation with uh, Albi Sachs about the book, Oliver Tambo's Dream. By the way, the last time I spoke to you on the radio, you taught me something I did not know as a know-it-all undergraduate law student, that um, once you're off the bench, I can't call you justice anymore. What about the title, Judge? Does that follow you to the grave? <laughs> or are you now just Albi? I call some people can't bear to call me Albie. It's just too much. So I say you can call me Judge Albie if you have to give a title, Judge Albie. And I have to respect actually the culture of others. So yes. I allow them to call me Judge Albie. I'm happy with Albie. I've got one last question for you, and then Karabo has got a last question for you as well. Mine is a stylistic one. You really do have a very lyrical, poetic, artistic um, writing style. Uh, on the bench, you had it, and also in your your writing as as an author. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because as someone fighting against the struggle of justice and the struggle for a more just contemporary South African, South Africa, Albi, it must be particularly hard to have artistic control over sentences, make them flow and drape over the furniture and what have you. You know what I mean? Like it's a beautiful process, but you're writing about stuff that's messy, that's ugly, that's emotionally jarring. How do you achieve that? It, it, it's, it's, um, that's the way I feel and see things. The words are, are not imposed on my thought. Uh, and normally lawyers suppress their feelings, mm. their emotions, their sensibilities, the texture, the richness. They suppress it. They feel you've got to be neutral, objective, yes. remove yourself totally. And I find that's false. In fact, it's, it's cheating. It's lying. You're not really being true. If you're true to yourself, mm. to your conscience, to your vision, the way your mind and your heart work together, then the lyrical language comes out. And I'm happy to see that uh, when, when, for example, the Chief Justice spoke about the duties of the President, he wasn't speaking in technical terms. That's right. It was yeah. lyrical. He comes mm. from a preacher's background. I come from another kind of messianic, if you like, uh, <laughs> uh, revolutionary kind of a background. 
But words then, words should have power to captivate, to entrance, uh, and, and the beauty of, of human thought and imagination should be in everything that we do, including uh, radio interviews for that matter. <laughs> and, you know, it takes me back to The Strange Alchemy of Life and Law. That's uh, Judge Sachs' uh, previous book. It is, it still blows my mind, especially on your approach on uh, what you call, you know, the, f- the, the four kind, um, kinds of truth. But I want to go back uh, to how you write that one of the reasons that O.R. Tambo was a great leader was that he never conducted himself as a great leader, um, great leader being in capital letters. Now, um, you go on to challenge what uh, in your youth as an activist um, uh, used to call the great man theory of history. Can you tell us a bit about that theory and why O.R. doesn't fit that and what kind of interactions did you have with him um, that, that brought you to that final analysis? You know, Karabo, while the um, news was being read and so on, I was thinking, why was O.R. so compelling? And he didn't have charisma. He had what I would call an inverse charisma. We, we were attracted to him precisely because he wasn't great and affirmative and ra- radiant. Uh, he was so decent. He was so good. Uh, he was so thoughtful. He was so embracing. He was so nice. In, in those days, one used to say, oh, so-and-so is a nice man or a nice woman. Uh, and then we dismissed that word nice because tea is nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but uh, that, in a way, was so formidable about him. He's at the heart of a revolutionary struggle. He's the commander-in-chief of Mkonto, where seas were. He has to take decisions, sending people into battle. He has to speak out to the world. And yet he doesn't conduct himself as somebody who's awesome, uh, who's grand. He's just OR all the way through. And and I remember when the first black consciousness people streamed out of the country and they came to Risaka and elsewhere and they saw this guy with his glasses, his briefcase, his, his kind of neat dress. They didn't like him at all. He didn't look like a revolutionary. But after four years, they just all loved O.R. because he cared. Mm -hmm. He committed himself to people. And his vision genuinely embraced everybody. If you support the African people struggling for national liberation, broadly understood, achieving that through democracy, everybody, whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your Mm -hmm. language, your parents, whether you're highly educated or illiterate, Please, we will go together. Uh, and that was really the source of, of, of his impact. And that's why so many exile movements splintered, expelled each other, even shot each other. He remained at the head uh, of, of a very dispersed movement with feisty, strong, passionate people uh, and almost universally loved and, and admired. Uh, and it's so great to bring him alive as much as I can today to the present generation, aching for decency, aching for integrity, uh, worried about sloganizing and shortcuts, worried about putting yourself above the things that you're speaking about. Uh, And and if I made any contribution last year, the centenary year of of Oliver Tumble's birth, it was through giving glimpses at least of what it was like 
working with him and imbibing something of his style of thinking, of thought, of openness, of consideration. Uh, the dream part in that sense is important. The dream involves an element of imagining a future that is better, imagining good things in people, knowing that we are limited, knowing that many of us become corrupt, knowing we have to guard against all these insincerities and, and tricks that people have, but never giving up, never giving up on that core idealism. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Sachs. That was stunning. Thank always, you. Always, always a pleasure. And thank you for producing another work that we can uh, really sort of delve into uh, in your style. Including I think this portrait, by the way, in the cover. That's yes, just stunning. it's lovely, yeah. It it's is. terrific. The young mm. OR, you know, people in South Africa only know the elderly guy had, had a stroke when everybody else raised their right arm for the amandla, he would raise his left arm because yes. his right arm was... Uh, and they must know the OR, you know, of a younger generation mm. when, when his mind was so active uh, and, and it contributed so much over the years. Judge Sachs, we wish you many, many happy sales uh, with this particular book and your other work as well. Thank you. Thank you. Eusebius MacKaiser on your number one news and talk station. Wasn't that nice? He is, he is always a pleasure to speak eh? to. And I think, you know, talking about integrity, I love how he sticks to the Constitution and he's able to connect it to whatever is happening in that moment. It's the same thing that he did Absolutely. with the strange alchemy of life and law and the strange alchemy of life and law. And he does it in the way that, you know, you can get it. Because mm. when that book came out, oh, it was, what, a good eight years ago. I was considerably yeah, younger, <laughs> you know, and even my thoughts of things have, have changed. And how he even links the Fallist movement mm. to apartheid and, you know, uh, goes about letting them know how, how that sort of evolved. And, you know, um, the way that he links OR's passion to non-sexism, how he had that meeting with uh, Frini Jinwala to set, to set up a, a, a proper sort of discussion about the role of women in the ANC, to shift it from that being of the catering wing, the support of the, 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 the fighters, uh, because it was seen that the men were fighters mm. themselves. Um, Albi also grew up in, in, in a workers' environment. You know, um, his, father was, his father was a unionist. His mother was actually the typist for Moses Kotani. <laughs> and uh, he himself, um, as, an, as an advocate early on in his career, also worked to represent uh, the rights of workers. Uh, I think it was the canning um, workers who were mostly women in Cape Town at the time. So uh, I love how he Beautiful. just sticks to it. He just keeps sticking to it. And I think, you know, he himself, Albi Sachs himself, is the last of a particular generation. We must so. hold on to him. Absolutely. Yeah. What are you reading at the moment? At the moment, I have just picked up a book. Um, I discovered it today, and it's about I've just the, the title has, has slipped my mind. But it is a novel that is about the lives of African prostitutes in Antwerp, in Belgium. So I'm looking forward to that. That's the the, the next one that I'm picking up. Okay, I'm busy reading an American book I've been meaning to read for at least the last year. Got it as a birthday gift last year uh, by a very good friend of mine, Sasha Polakov-Suransky, who's an awesome, awesome author himself, American. And uh, this book is Hillbilly Elegy, which I'm going to come back to on the show next week. Uh. Not on the literature corner, because I want to treat it in a different part of the show. But what's really awesome about this book is, and uh, it's quite sad, you know, Judge Sex was asking what good came out of apartheid. You can also ask the question, what good came out of Trump? One of the good things is that we're now paying attention to people who are different to ourselves, because we're suddenly going, who supports this idiot? 
And the truth is that real human beings do do. And this is a, a, a family memoir that the author has written coming from um, a poor working class white American yes. community. And um, he just basically writes about what it is that makes the hillbillies um, tick. Now, he's not using the term disparagingly, nor trying to appropriate it. He's just trying to be honest about how poor white trash, quote-unquote, are viewed even by white middle-class people in America. And this book has suddenly been all the rage over the last year because now everyone wants to understand who is the support base of Donald Trump. But you know what I love about the book so far? I'm going to finish it today because it's just been a beautiful read. It doesn't try to be analytical it doesn't try to be academic, even though this guy is a very clever lawyer and he's got some references that are academic. What he does, because of the beautiful writing about his family and the background, and I'll put some excerpts on, on Facebook and I'll read some next week, he makes you feel like you're part of his family and his community. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, you know what, in this era of identity politics where we all draw these lagers and it's all about me, 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 we actually forget to pick up books that take you into families and communities that are very different to to our own. That's why, Eusebius, it's very important to expatriate your reading list. (laughs) You know, Um, I I listened to a podcast, and this is why governments, uh, you know, the the, the shrinking in funding into the arts um, means that the people who lose out the most are those so-called working class writers where they get to tell their stories. So we start to to think in a very sort of parochial, inward looking way. Thank you, Karaba. We love your love of books. Um, That was absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I had fun.